I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. We're here in Nebraska, and it is very, very cold, and there's lots of snow coming down. So we're really anxious to think about Easter Sunday, <laughs> <laughs> and April 1st is sounding really attractive to us. Um, and this year, the Revised Common Lectionary takes us to the passage in Mark, Mark 16, 1 through 8. Now, we all know that Mark goes well beyond that with um, a couple of additional endings. And Alan is just a person to give us a lot of background about those endings um, and about why we should be stopping at 8. And I, we all know that, and yet I think it, you'll find it very interesting and helpful to know what's wrong with the other two endings. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Christy. Um, I do believe Mark very likely did conclude his gospel with this brief account in Mark 16, 1 through 8, of the women's experience at the empty tomb. Now, in comparison with the other gospels, very early on, the church believed that this was not appropriate. There were no appearances of the resurrected Jesus, and there was no great commission or something like it. And so for that reason, the ending of Mark's gospel is one of the handful of major problems with the original text of the Greek New Testament that really needs serious uh, discussion. Do you think, I'm kind of interjecting here, but do you think part of this explains why Mark's been kind of a disregarded gospel? Does it, did people think it was incomplete and so therefore they just kind of ignored it? Well, I mean, I think in general, you know, in comparison with Matthew and Luke and John, it was considered to be a defective gospel, yeah. as I've mentioned before, yeah. because it didn't have the fullness of some of the things that those other gospels contain. Right. And this just added to the problem. Right. Like right. That. Okay. Yeah. So, um, there is manuscript and, and when I say manuscript, I'm talking about, um, handwritten copies of the Greek version of Mark. There's manuscript and other early evidence that Mark's gospel circulated, uh, was passed around uh, with four endings. Um, some, some manuscripts have the gospel ending at Mark 16.8. Some manuscripts of Mark's gospel have what's called the shorter ending, and we'll talk about that. Some have what's called the longer ending, which is basically what we know as Mark 16.9-20. And then some have both the shorter ending and the longer ending. So, uh, and in fact, actually, uh, Bruce Metzger, the famous Princeton textual critical mm -hmm. scholar, would have said that actually there was another ending, which was the longer ending plus a whole big chunk added in verse 14 that's in one manuscript mm -hmm. uh, housed in Washington, D.C. So, you know, this is, uh, we have all these different endings and, you know, the, the way textual critics worked, at least when I was in the Guild, they, they have moved on to machine-based learning now, which is, which is a bit uh, beyond my, my uh, expertise. But at least the principles uh, were based on comparing manuscripts. And so, for example, um, usually the shorter reading was considered to be more original because scribes tend to add things rather than leave things out. Uh, but really, the, the, one of the most important criteria, and, uh, criteria for, for trying to figure out which, of the, which is the original ending was which ending best explains the origin of the others, or which, which variant best ex explains the or origin of the others. So, uh, you know, when it comes to textual criticism, we don't just count manuscripts, we weigh them. And the evidence of the early witnesses to the text of Mark's gospel supports Mark 16.8 as the original ending. The two best and earliest Greek manuscripts of the entire New Testament that we have are Codex Sinaiticus, which is abbreviated with Aleph, and Codex mm -hmm. Vaticanus, which is B. They're both dated around 350. Uh, and, and that's where they end. Um, some early versions in Latin, Syriac, and Coptic also have the same ending. And that, the reason why this is important is because many of these um, early translations actually predate some of the later Greek manuscripts mm -hmm. that have mm -hmm. the longer ending. 
And then two early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria and Origen, show no knowledge of Mark 16, 9 through 20 whatsoever. And then Eusebius and Jerome also both say explicitly that these verses were missing from the accurate copies of Mark that they knew. And again, church fathers yeah, are important yeah. because, again, some of them, we can date them and we can locate them. Some of them, you know, right. were around before, long before some of these Greek, some of the other Greek manuscripts that have the longer ending. Right. Is there any, you know, as you're talking about these different manuscripts and you're talking about maybe where they're, does it, does there, is there something to be said about that they're disseminated about the empire, if you will, um, that, that might reflect an original ending as opposed to maybe a, a handful of, added ones that are in a certain area? Well, typically that's what you would look for. Unfortunately, um, uh, with with only these two manuscripts, we can't really, you know, one of the problems with Greek manuscripts is that we can't really place them. Mm-hmm. Now, the versions we can place, because obviously the Latin versions would have come from Rome and the Syriac versions would have come from Syria and the Coptic ver- versions would have come from Egypt, you know, and mm-hmm. so we can we can place those mm-hmm. and we can't really date those necessarily with a lot of certainty. Church fathers, we can place and date them. Right. That's with true. Some accuracy. That's true. So that's why they're important witnesses also. So now, um, so that's that's the ending that most New Testament scholars believe is original today. Now there is also a shorter a shorter ending, and this this ending you don't really. See, I mean, it's printed in most English Bibles, um, and it just simply says, "But they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all that they had been told." And after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Well, just the language of it is not marking at all, and it, it's very much reflective of the later church. Mm-hmm. And, and this ending is found by itself as the ending of Mark's gospel only in a few Greek manuscripts, while in several others it precedes the longer ending Mark. 9 through 20. Um, in, and in one old Latin manuscript, it would seem that Mark's gospel does also end with this statement. So the shorter ending, really, nobody thinks that it was original. Uh, but it does provide evidence, I think, that Mark's gospel circulated without the longer ending, Mark 16, 9 through 20, because otherwise there would have been no need for this shorter ending to be composed. The shorter ending is not in the stuff of the reformers, by the way. I'm the, sure they weren't even aware of gone. it. Gone, yeah. yeah. I'm sure so, they okay, weren't even that makes aware sense. of it. Yeah, they yeah. they do in, they will include the longer ending, which we yeah. will talk about when we get to my portion. But this shorter ending is not there. Yeah, because the the Greek New Testament that the reformers had was uh, the the text of Erasmus, right. which was based primarily on uh, Codex D and 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 the the later manuscripts that he had available. Yeah. So then, uh, besides ending in Mark 16, 8 and the shorter ending, uh, there is what is so-called the longer ending or what is printed in most English Bibles as Mark 16, 9 through 20. It's found in 99% of the Greek manuscripts, and some people, for that reason, argue mm-hmm. that, well, this was, the, this was the reading of the church and we should follow it. That's not really sound logic because we have to think about the way manuscripts were copied. Mm-hmm. So, so if if say Sinaiticus or Vaticanus were copied in the fourth century, and then they were lost, there would not be any further copies of those manuscripts exactly. made. Exactly. But let's say uh, Alexandrinus is one of the. It's abbreviated A. Alexandrinus is one of the manuscripts that has the longer ending. Let's say Alexandrinus was preserved, and had multiple copies made of it. Right. Well, so all those copies, do they count? as individual copies or are they just further witnesses to the text of the original Alexandrinus a, you know? And so from that perspective, you kind of have to take a a more of a, I guess what you'd call a genealogical approach to the manuscripts and you want to trace them back to the earliest possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So again, one of the main principles is that manuscripts must be weighed and not counted. It's, it's incredibly unlikely that this was the original ending of Mark's gospel for many reasons. Uh, the language of this, of this ending is also very much um, not Markan. Uh, there are like numerous uh, Greek words that are, you know, if this is part of Mark's gospel, it's, this is the only place that these oh, words are sure, found in the whole sure, of Mark's gospel. Sure. Yeah. Also, you know, it's pretty, pretty obvious that, that whoever composed this ending just basically took resurrection appearances and various comments from throughout the New Testament, mm-hmm. and you can trace those references right, pretty easily. Right. Uh, now, besides the evidence already cited, 
um, uh, many manuscripts and some early versions contain both the shorter and the longer ending, which suggests uncertainty as to whether each of those, either of those, were original. You know, and it's like I said, when in doubt, scribes tend to just throw everything in, including the kitchen sink. And so, um, you know, the fact that there are some copies of the Greek New Testament that have both of these endings mark both of both the shorter and the longer endings as as suspect. Um, and there are also other Greek manuscripts that have the longer ending, but they mark it as suspect with asterisks and obelai in the, in the margins. So, um, again, you know, even some of the manuscripts that contain it mm-hmm. have indications that, they're, um, that the scribes that were copying this knew that there were other manuscripts that did not, right. and they judge right. those to be more it, accurate. It, it seems like, you know, yeah, they, they're mark going ahead and including it because it's there, but yet they have these misgivings about it, but you don't want to leave off something in case there's something they don't know. Right. You know, I can they see were, that they, happening. Their, their, yeah. their fear was not that they would add too much, but that they would take away right, something. Right. That was what, that mm-hmm. was their fear. Mm-hmm. So the longer ending was probably compiled from other New Testament texts as a fitting conclusion to Mark's gospel probably early on sometime yeah. perhaps even in the second century ad because even vaticanus and this is an interesting thing uh you, there you know if you if you if you have access to a photographic facsimile of vaticanus b if you turn to the to the folio that has the last part of mark's gospel it's a uh, vaticanus is a three column manuscript and in the middle of the second column mark's gospel stops with and the women and for they were afraid and it said and it typically in 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 the fashion of greek manuscripts it has the according to mark the, the title comes at the end and then typically the, the scribe would leave the rest of that column blank and in the next column yeah, you, start the next you don't book. waste the the, the no um, yeah, the, the parchment is so, um, it was so expensive. expensive. It was expensive to make, space. make yeah. these codices. Yeah, exactly. So in Vaticanus, the third column is left blank, which indicates that in, that in the early, in the, in the fourth century around 300, 350 AD, whenever the, this copy was made, this scribe knew that there was another ending of Mark's gospel, mm-hmm. but judged it not to be original. So yeah. how interesting and how fun. Well, okay. So this still, now if we've, kind of set that aside and and we understand we still end up with a gospel that has a strange ending right so let's talk about that a little bit yeah so some have said that perhaps mark was prevented from finishing the gospel which i think is really unlikely many have said that the original ending was perhaps lost in the course of transmission um i'm not so sure about that either because i think in the time you know in the original Um, In the time when these Gospels were originally copied, they would have been written on scrolls, not codices. It's it's possible to think of it as a codex, which was an early book Mm -hmm, form that the page would have been lost, but scrolls were different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm not really convinced of that either. There is a sense when I read it as as a modern reader that... Mark's gospel ending that way is like a really modern ending. You know, yes, it's it like really yeah. cool. And somehow we don't want to attribute that someone in that era could write something that had this this feeling that seems modern today, which I think is really unfair to what we do see is a very creative yeah. and carefully constructed gospel. Yeah. Well, and part of the question is, are, is there any precedent for, for documents ending in this way? Mm-hmm. Because basically, the whole gospel ends with a the phrase "for they were afraid." Efabunto gar. So the last word is gar, gar, which is a postpositive conjunction for right. Exactly. And and this is really grammatically abrupt and awkward. Um, there are, however, a, a few. I mean, this is not the norm. For granted, but there are a few ancient texts that do end in this mm-hmm. kind of abrupt mm-hmm. way. Now, part of it also has to do with the fact that um, the ending is substantively abrupt because right. the women are commissioned to go and tell, tell, and it just says that they they left and said nothing because right. they were afraid. Right. So, so substantively, it's, it's a bit... They leave us hanging. It, Absolutely. It does leave us hanging. Again, it, it that, is It is a cliffhanger, that that's for that sure. It's a modern kind of, kind of mentality that's going into it, and yet... In some ways, I think that's really incredibly brilliant when you read the whole Bible, whole whole uh, the whole gospel. Yeah, so- and, and we'll see later. I think it was an intentional move. 
now it is true then that if we if we see Mark sixteen eight as the original ending, that there would there are no appearances of the resurrected Jesus in the original version of Mark's gospel, mm-hmm. but there is nevertheless a clear announcement that he has been raised, and the expectation that his disciples would see him in Galilee, exactly. based on Mark exactly. sixteen seven. Ahead of you, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and although there is no clear commission. To the to True. the disciples in the ending of Mark's gospel, Jesus has already spoken about this in Mark thirteen ten as a, in his discourse on the coming of the Son of Man, where he says, "and in, and the good news must first be proclaimed to all the nations." So there mm-hmm. is a great commission in Mark's gospel right. already. Right. So uh, those are two of the big objections, I guess, and mm-hmm. and the other mm-hmm. one is is well, you know, we're we're imposing modern sensibilities on Mark, and I don't think that's the case at all. I think I think we'll see later. Mark was writing a gospel for his community, mm-hmm. and and the ending of Mark's gospel in Mark sixteen eight reflects those realities. Excellent. Well, so let's start digging in then to what what we read here. Yeah, well, we, we, we start off with a listing of the same women who were present at Jesus' crucifixion, and two of those who saw where Jesus' body was buried. And I find it interesting that within the space of Mark 1540, Mark 1547, which is the last verse of chapter 15, and then Mark 16:1, which is the very next verse, these women are named, they're, they're mentioned by name, you know, essentially three times, you know. And so I think that's significant. Um, now, now, Bultmann and others argued that this demonstrated that Mark was piecing together elements that were originally separated. I don't buy that. Hmm. I think, really, he was drawing attention. These are the people. These are the women who witnessed Jesus' crucifixion. These are the women who saw where Jesus was buried. These are the women who went to the tomb and found it empty and received the message from the, the young man that they encountered there. And I think, really, it draws attention to the fact that these women— and only these women were those among Jesus' disciples who were devoted enough to risk witnessing Jesus' crucifixion, to risk following Joseph of Arimathea to the tomb, and to risk returning there after the mm-hmm. Sabbath day ended mm-hmm. to properly prepare Jesus' body for burial. They're the ones who commissioned to tell the, the other disciples about the resurrection and that he would see them in Galilee. And so in Mark's gospel, these women play a central role in the death, mm-hmm. burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which was the heart of the gospel message in the New Testament. Jesus died, he was buried, and mm-hmm. he was raised on the third day. And I also think, you know, it makes me wonder, you know, the fact that Jesus' male apostles you know, they're the ones called the apostles. We're right. nowhere in the picture here. Probably would have been a potential source of embarrassment in a patriarchal society. It may have yes. been part yes. of the impetus for for providing a more suitable ending to Mark's gospel. It, it absolutely could have been. I mean, yeah. and, and it'll be interesting because um, Calvin deals with this some later on uh, in his era, which is still patriarchal. So it's mm. really interesting. Um, and of course, in, in the modern day, uh, you know, women use this as, and absolutely why women are in the ministry, absolutely yes. why women are, uh, can be in an apostolic role. And even Calvin acknowledges, at least here, they are. Yeah, you know? they so, are, indeed. Um, they are the apostles who are sent to the apostles with the message exactly. that Jesus was raised and he's, he's going to meet you in Galilee. Yeah, so yeah. very, very important and interesting. And I, you know, I can't help but think, and he, he named who these women were. Yes. It, it wasn't it, because so often we don't name people. And this right. is very intentional, yes, um, very specific women. Yeah. Um, so tell us about the women's response, though. How do, yeah. how do we understand that? Well, I think we should see this as in line with the response that people make to Jesus throughout the Gospel of Mark. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus provokes yeah. amazement. Yeah. And in this episode, you know, the women are no exception. They're, they're alarmed, they're amazed, and they're afraid. And, mm-hmm. and these are responses that, we've, that we can see in Mark's gospel. Not only was the tomb already open, but when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man seated on the right side. Mm-hmm. Now, the young man is not specifically identified as an angel, but it is common in the biblical narrative for angels to appear in human form. Right, right. And so this site, I think, along with the open tomb, was enough to promote alarm, provoke alarm, as some uh, 
English versions translated, or amazement in the women. And I find it interesting that this response, it's ekthambeo in the Greek, is a characteristic response to Jesus in Mark's gospel. We either find ekthambeo or we find the, the other, the sort of the root verb thambeo in Mark's gospel. And we saw this very response, thambeo, in the episode of Jesus casting out the unclean spirit mm-hmm. for the man in mm-hmm. the synagogue of Capernaum at the beginning of the narrative. So this is a very characteristic response. Um, to the things that God is doing in and through Jesus um, by on the part of the people who witness it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. All right, so let's continue on. What what happens with the women next? So the young man tells the women not to be alarmed or amazed and identifies their purpose. You are seeking Jesus, the crucified. And I find it interesting because almost all English versions translate this passage along the lines of the new RSV. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Yeah. But that's not the way the Greek words it. In the Greek, it, there is a participial phrase, ton estauromenon, that describes Jesus as the crucified one. It's a perfect passive participle, and it functions as an adjectival description of Jesus identifying him. So this is identifying Mm -hmm. Jesus still as the crucified one. Jesus is the crucified one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things, one of the interesting things you find in the New Testament is that Jesus is identified as the crucified one Mm -hmm. like this long after he's resurrected. We find it used several times in Paul's writings. And so, you know, we approach this passage and we probably would want to think of the statement, he has been raised, he is not here as the focal point of the passage. But by contrast, that statement seems much less weighty grammatically in Mark because it's just the simple Arist, Egerthe, he was raised. He was raised. It's not he has been raised. Right. It was he was raised. He was raised. That's it, period. Grammatically speaking, it's almost as if the weight is much more on the fact that Jesus, the crucified one, they're mm-hmm. talking about mm-hmm. Jesus, the crucified one. You're looking for Jesus, the crucified one. He is not here. He has been raised. He, he was raised. He was raised. He was raised. Now, of course, at the same time, the New Testament does speak of Jesus as the risen one, mm-hmm. using the perfect passive participle of a gyro. Uh, I think of 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. He's the one who mm-hmm. has been raised. Mm-hmm. He's also described as the living one. Uh, and Luke's version of this uh, has the angel say, why do you seek the living among the dead? And it's tonzonta. The living one okay. among the dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and so clearly both Jesus' cross and resurrection serve to identify Jesus in the New Testament. But I find it interesting that the language of Mark's gospel seems to put more emphasis on the fact that Jesus is the crucified one. And mm-hmm. it does mention that he has been raised. And I don't want to play that down too much. But the, it seems like the stress grammatically is more on he is the crucified well, one. Well, I think what's interesting about that, and, and as we will talk later it, it doesn't separate. I mean, it puts together more the the resurrection and the death together as opposed to pulling them apart. And this yeah. is something our reformers are really going to deal with. And I think it's te- we tend to forget about the crucified one and just think about the risen Christ. And um, We can't do that in Mark's Gospel that. because Mark's yeah. Gospel has focused... Uh, very almost almost completely right. on the fact that 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 Jesus is moving toward the cross that has been and and that Jesus is right. going to go to the cross that has been sort of the main point of Mark's gospel all along right right and and then yeah and then we can't just and and it it in fact the whole the whole the way Mark ends actually kind of supports that as well mm-hmm. because we're not spending all this time with resurrected Jesus right. and so I think that's a a really poignant piece, and I think it's really important for us theologically as well um, to think of you know yeah. and, and even as we're talking and I'm sitting there contemplating the crucified Christ, the crucified one, that has different imagery for me. Yes. I, all of a sudden, I'm I'm reminded I'm reminded of the suffering that I yes. had kind of skipped over. <laughs> yes, as I'm picking up Easter eggs. We do that at Easter, right? We do, we do that we at really Easter, do. and we we do that in our churches because we see Jesus as the risen one. We see Jesus as the living one, and that kind of downplays the fact that Jesus is also the crucified one. So we're moving on. So what do the women do next? <laughs> well, the angel then commissions the women. Uh, he he send he he commissions them to tell his disciples and Peter. 
and Peter is specifically Peter's, named Peter's here. named. <laughs> yeah. The message that he was going ahead of them into Galilee and that they would see him there. So mm-hmm. again, you have a reference right. to resurrection appearance, exactly. at least implied in that message. Now, some have said that this statement that Jesus would meet them resolves the tension of the disciples, the fact that the disciples deserted him. You know, they're not anywhere to be found in the crucifixion and and the burial and the resurrection in Mark's gospel. Right. Because it implies that they're still his disciples and he has not rejected them. And the reference to Peter, I don't know, it may allude to Peter's significance among the disciples. It may allude to his notable failure in that he denied Jesus three times. But it may also allude to a tradition that's found in Luke 24, 34 and in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, that the first appearance Mm -hmm. of the resurrected Jesus was to Peter. There are these references elsewhere that seem to indicate he was the first. Right. And by contrast, of course, Matthew says it was to the women also. Uh, Well, actually, Matthew says that it was to the women because Mm -hmm. right after the women receive this message in Matthew's gospel, they run off to go tell the disciples in fear and joy. Yes, right. But then they meet Jesus. Exactly. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And of course, John reports uh, Jesus' first appearances to Mary Magdalene. So um, there is some there is some variety in the in the early gospel tradition about who got the first exactly. You know, who got the first um, um, shall we say audience with the resurrected Jesus? And for many women, we don't forget ever about Matthew. So I'm just I'm just putting that putting that in. I mean, yes. The Mark story, but this Matthew story where they see the resurrected mm-hmm. Christ, that's a huge piece uh, for for many women. Just interestingly brought it up, and I, I guess what came to mind when I was thinking about this for my college students, I think I mentioned my college students studying Mark, and they really have, they usually they're like, these disciples just don't get it. And so here we are again with these disciples, these clueless disciples, right? I mean, they're not even, they're, they're not, not even, even around. They're and, not even and, around. And it yeah. does kind of make me giggle that this is a theme that my college students have picked up. And, you know, I know, I mean, I can understand, especially women in ministry wanting to focus on the women as being the heroes, sort of, as, as your heroes, you know, in terms of, you know, hey, these women were, were the first apostles to the apostles, right? Right, and, right. And I agree right. with that. But unfortunately, the women in Mark's gospel, they, they're they kind of a an ambiguous they uh, are. Uh, hero, so to speak, an ambiguous um, example, because... You know, Mark's gospel does end with the statement that the women said nothing to anyone exactly. because they were afraid. So we get in trouble. So we go to the Matthews women. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, the women's fear and silence does seem to be a perplexing way to end the gospel. Um, although they were commissioned to tell the others, at least within the confines of the narrative of Mark's gospel, their fear keeps them from fulfilling that commission. But we assume, I think we have to assume. We do. Because... We're we reading do. this about Jesus that somehow we do. We do. That, th- that they actually go ahead and Yeah, I, I hadn't gotten there yet. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I had to okay. jump ahead. I had to support my girls. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So at least within the confines of the narrative, you know, um, they don't fulfill their commission. And it's possible. Now, so the question is, why would Mark end with the women being silent because they were afraid? Well, it's possible, for example, that this reflects the situation of Mark's gospel, Mark's community uh, living under the constant threat of persecution. The fear displayed by the women would have been a regular part of their experience. If they told the gospel about Jesus being crucified and resurrected, they may have placed their lives in danger. And so the women's fear is something that, that Mark's community regularly experienced. At the same time, you know, in a very real sense, the ending does cry out for more because it's like you, you, if you end here, it's like, wait, no, the story can't end there. There has to be more. And it cries out for the good news of Jesus' resurrection to be told, which may have also been the reason for this ending. It may be that Mark was trying to, to, to craft his gospel in such a way that the readers in his community would have just been compelled to, to proclaim the message, even though they face danger in doing so. Um, but again, as you mentioned earlier, at the same time, when Mark's gospel was written, Christians knew, they already knew what had happened after this episode. The women did tell their story to the disciples. Jesus did appear to his disciples in Galilee, as was attested by Paul, even as early as 1 Corinthians. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, the disciples who were notoriously absent from Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, uh, especially in Mark's gospel, were transformed into bold evangelists. And Peter himself had very likely died as a martyr 
as a result of his uh, proclamation of the gospel. So, you know, we do know that the story has an ending, mm-hmm. and, and Mark's, Mark's community would have known mm-hmm. that the women did tell the story, that, you know, Jesus did meet the disciples, and that the, the, the apostles, the original apostles, did overcome their fear and, and become bold witnesses. Right. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about this ending. I'm thinking about, and Mark doesn't need the kind of proof, you know, that Thomas, I, and I, I think that's really interesting that somehow the, the proof needed to prove this isn't there. Mm-hmm. That, 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 you, that for Mark, and, and maybe I'm totally off base, but, but that, that Mark's like, the proof is already Yes. been laid out for oh, yeah. you. I think you're right there. I think you're on target there. Um, you know, the idea is that from, and some have pointed this out, the, for Mark, it seems like all that's necessary is to tell the story of the empty tomb mm-hmm. and nothing else is necessary. Mm-hmm. The later gospel writers chose to include uh, the, re- the appearances of the resurrected Jesus. That was due to the fact that people knew that, mm-hmm. that, I mean, that this was part of the story that they had been told, mm-hmm. right? That, mm-hmm. that Jesus had appeared. But for Mark, for Mark's purposes, that wasn't necessary. That wasn't necessary. You've got the cross. You've got the resurrection. You've got the promise of resurrection appearances. You've got the Great Commission mm-hmm. already in mm-hmm. Mark 13. It's a complete gospel. It's complete. Uh, so. Except for the fact that the way it ends begs and really compels the reader to tell the story. I was going to say, I think that's... That's begging then who's reading it to, to finish it. Yes. And I, yes, exactly. Yeah. And They're to finish it by their own telling of the exactly. story. Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, and if that's indeed what Mark intended, it's brilliant, yeah, actually. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, now, some have said, well, this is, this is based on modern existential literary theory, and maybe there are some who are, are in that space, but I don't think so at all. I think we're grounding this very firmly in the experience of Mark's community and what it would have been, what they would have been having to undergo mm-hmm. as a community. Uh, it is very consistent. The, the woman's response, as I said earlier, is very consistent with the general response mm-hmm. to Jesus and what God is doing through Jesus throughout the gospel. So uh, it makes sense for well, Mark's gospel to end this we, way. I think we kind of, that undermines really the talented writer that Mark was. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this gospel is so filled with with very, it's, very sophisticated um, literary techniques to yes. think that all of a sudden he's not capable of ending a gospel, right. I think is very compelling. And I think, honestly, when we add the other pieces, we actually dilute it myself. Mm. Um, but I will say this. I didn't necessarily grow up with it this way. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think I don't remember hearing that, that God, Mark's gospel ended this way as a kid. Mm. I, I, I didn't hear this till I was an adult. So, right. Right. Well, and, you know, we, we still have English Bibles that are printed that have no indication <laughs> whatsoever that this is anything other than the original ending of Mark's gospel. Yeah, Ellen has one. <laughs> yeah, I do. I have one sitting right here on the table. That's right. So, yeah, that's not that long ago. How, what's the date on that Bible? Well, I, it was bought in the 70s, but still. I, I'm in sure, the 70s, yeah. I'm, I'm sure there's still English Bibles that are being printed I'm, now. I'm sure they are. That, that don't mark this as, as somehow questionable. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so, um, yeah just interesting, uh, interesting pieces. Yeah. Well, we'll come back and we'll talk about some reformers. All right. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. We're back, and I'm going to start off by asking Christy to tell us a little bit about the Bibles that the Reformers would have used since we're dealing with an issue of the text of Scripture. Uh, So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So one of the important things to recognize with our Reformers is that they would have had no idea that there were all these different different manuscripts that would have had... um, would have had this gospel ending at eight or with a shorter ending or longer ending. In fact, they there's no shorter ending at all. And I think um, Alan described that earlier. Um, and they just simply go straight through all the way to um, to the end of the longer ending. So there there's when they are discussing this, they they aren't even able to conceive that it ended at eight. So that provides a different framework immediately in terms of how you interpret it because they can only interpret it thinking and believing that the gospel goes all the way through right. uh, the, the end of the long ending. So um, 
Erasmus's New Testament, I think we talked about what was the Greek Bible that all of our all of our reformers are using. They are trusting his work, and so they're they're using that then for their own study. So Calvin, um, Calvin has actually taken that Greek and um, then re um, translated it into his own Latin, and then uses that Latin for the basis of his commentaries. Interesting. So very interesting thing that he does, um, and. Uh, uh, of course, Calvin is often preaching in French because um, he's in French canton. So when he's preaching French um, and reading French, we think he's probably using the text of his um, um, the text of his nephew, uh, which he has written an introduction for. So there's a um, that's probably the French that he's using as it's kind of designed and to be the contemporary language of of the people listening. So. He's doing that. And Luther, meanwhile, is writing his own German Bible, which we know. And so the Luther Bible, 1545, um, is based also off the Erasmus text. So that's what you're using. And that text, as we already talked about before, also includes this long ending. Well, and, you know, there were, there were other editions of the Greek New Testament that were published in the 16th century. Stephanus, Debeza mm-hmm. uh, come to mind. But they essentially repeated the same text as Erasmus. There was, right, there was right. no discovery of, of new manuscripts. There was no insight into textual criticism until um, really about 150 years later. Yeah, yeah. So these questions, is it the, the kinds of questions that we have or we observe it? I had asked Alan earlier, you know, um, about the difference in the Greek, you know, and, and, and something that a modern scholar would be able to recognize, but I just don't think those were questions that were even asked at yeah. this point. Um, um, they were so excited. In fact, they were more concerned about the problems in, in Jerome's Vulgate than mm-hmm. they were <laughs> right. about about whatever Greek they had. Yeah, their, mm-hmm. their, their existential problem, so to speak, with the Bible was, how does this compare with the Vulgate, which has been the Bible of the church for a thousand yeah. years? Yeah, yeah. But I do think what happens for us, you know, and we're thinking, okay, well, who cares? Because I think their desire to collapse the Bibles, the, um, the, the, the Gospels, into one narrative. I mean, they recognize there's differences, but yet there's this belief that there's this one message coming through. And so they, both Luther and Calvin in particular still have to make whatever differences um work together they have to mm. mesh together and so there's a lot of well we can explain this way so they're harmonizing they're harmonizing yeah. exactly yeah. um and so that that i think makes its way really um centuries later because i think even to even from my growing up i don't remember hearing mark's um gospel being different until I was an adult. So I think that desire to do that is still present. And mm-hmm. um, we see it with the Christmas story. We see it with the Easter story. Um, so I think that's kind of some of the heritage that we pick up from the reformers and, and they make sense of it um, um, uh, in their own way. They'll, they'll write off something or say, well, this is how this, author really meant there, there really were three women, but you know, he just reduced it to one. And so that makes, that's okay because that's just a literary technique. And so Calvin will pull this part because that's what Calvin does in his, um, um, in his commentary. So, uh, and it's kind of interesting to see where they go. Um, <laughs> Calvin, um, Calvin's really, really hard on, on the disciples <laughs> he's like you know <laughs> they were they were foolish and they were weak and they were stupid and <laughs> and that's why he appeared to the women <laughs> because they kind of didn't earn they didn't earn their right to be seen for Jesus the risen lord at this point so <laughs> oh wow so the and, women, the women only get choose because the men, yeah. the men abandoned their yeah, their God given role. I guess exactly, huh? but it's pretty insulting to women as <laughs> yeah, well. Right? Although he does acknowledge that the women do get this apostolic role at least temporarily. Otherwise, no, it's uh, pretty the New much New Testament indicates that it's not just temporary. <laughs> <laughs> you have to put it in the context of the time, and right. 
in a way that it also reflects that here is a reminder of how Jesus has come for the weakest and the most incapable. Mm. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty oh. bad. <laughs> so the women are the weakest and the most incapable. Yes, huh? and he mm. even is critical that the women would go to the tomb because the women should have believed what he said anyway, that he would rise from the dead and they should have known he wasn't there. <laughs> Oh, my. <laughs> wow. He's really hard on everybody. Goodness. Yeah, I can't say that this is one of Calvin's finest hours. You know? Um, yeah, you should not have assumed he was amongst the dead. It's oh, super, my. Super funny. Wow. Um, and uh, then he also was critical. He thought, now, why would they question that they would be able to roll away the stone? They shouldn't have been asking that question anyway. <laughs> Um, but also that, and like we had mentioned that Peter in particular had the, the, the worst sins against Christ, um, and the greatest need to reconcile. And that is why he is mentioned. So I thought that was interesting. Um, and then he goes on and I didn't go into, to spending a lot of effort with the rest of the chapter, because then he goes on to explain away, for example, Mary Magdalene, um, is just really one of the women just wasn't mentioned originally. Um, and just to go on to the next pieces that, that we didn't really cover. So the transition from three from the women to Mary Magdalene is just that he, he picks her out as, as one of the three. Yeah, basically. Yeah. 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 Uh, the reformers will, there's going to be a lot of emphasis on the Great Commission. Um, that just becomes a huge piece of the Reformation world. So you constantly see references by Luther, by Calvin, by Bullinger, of Mark six, Mark sixteen fifteen, yeah. Okay. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and then also to the baptism that all should be yeah. baptized. He that so, believe the, the one who believes and is baptized shall be saved, but the one who does not believe shall shall right. be condemned. So yeah. this all becomes caught up then with the end of Matthew into you know who should be baptized, who's not baptized, who's you know the great commission. So all these are constantly referenced by these folks, and yet here we're talking about this probably really wasn't part of the original right. um, gospel. So I didn't spend a lot of effort, but to know that for them, this was absolutely legitimate stuff. And mm -hmm. so they, they did use this to support their arguments. So moving on, we could talk a little about Luther because Luther will use this text. And I say it very lightly <laughs> in, his, in his sermons. But what's super funny is because everything's collapsed, he doesn't try to pull it apart at all. It kind of just gets morphed into other ones. So you'll be reading this supposedly the sermon about Mark, but it really kind of gets morphed into John. I mean, right. it's just so. He well, just, and that makes sense because I mean, so, that's where the content of Mark 16, nine through 20 actually comes yeah, from. Yeah, exactly. And so it's all, all in there, but I think um, it still reflects a little bit though of Luther's theology, you know, his whole space about, um, about the cross and um, the meaning of the cross and the meaning of the resurrection. I, I was looking at a piece by Robert Kolb that talked about the thing that, that people don't sometimes understand about Luther is that for him, the death on the cross and the resurrection were, they had to be together. And there's been a tendency to pull apart, pull these apart, um, kind of overlooking actually the resurrection because of the death and the, atone, the atonement. Um, Whereas he's saying, you know, that's not really fair to who Luther is. And it's in mm. these sermons that we get this unity of, um, of the, the necessity of the res resurrection being associated immediately with the crucifixion. So these become together, and they're together in terms of, of the Christian follower. So I think that's really interesting. And as I got reading through his sermons on, um, on this passage, what struck me was a real sense of humanity that comes into this. And I think um, we've talked about that before. There's this tendency to see the risen Christ as being so divine um, that we can't even access that, that Christ. And so for Luther was this sense of, no, this is a very, even though risen, this is still very human Christ who is risen uh, and died so that we are brothers and sisters with him. And so there's this very, very, urgent sense of of compassion and friendliness and 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 acting in the here and now with our brothers and sisters on earth and it has a very different sense and of course he's using this then as criticism for the tradition of uh, uh, 
a priesthood that would be above everybody else, right. that would set themselves up, that would not be involved with common humanity. And, and so this really fits into this Reformation um, context. So, yeah. um, and as I said, it was, it was Dr. Kolb that um, was the one to really point out that even in Lutheran studies, this has been a little bit overlooked because there's been so much emphasis on the cross mm-hmm. that they've forgotten to look at that association with the resurrection. But it's right there. In fact, it was the first thing I read. And it's kind of interesting. Um, I, I got to read some Luther. We got to read Luther because Luther's so funny. But it, talking about the nature of human sin, and the greatest sin is not to believe. Right. <laughs> right. And so there's this sense of, okay, well, I can maybe. I can maybe accept that Christ died for my sins, but I can't be one with Christ now because I'm still too unworthy and just not even accepting God's grace, which I think we tend to do as Christians. We're like, I'm still not worthy of God. Uh, I hear that from people, yeah. Exactly, and and he's like, that's the worst sin because you're really denying God's sovereignty, mm. and you're also detracting from Christ who gave everything. So mm. I love this quote because this is a Luther quote, and I want to always infuse you with his interesting language. So just as a pig's bladder must be rubbed with salt and thoroughly worked to distend it, so this old hide of ours must be well salted and plagued until we call for help and cry aloud, and so stretch and expand ourselves both through internal and through external suffering that we may finally succeed and attain this heart and cheer, joy and consolation from Christ's resurrection. So, you know, his point is, yeah, we need to recognize that, that, even the, the the depth of our sin that we are placed in, including that which of which we feel so unworthy, mm. and it's only then when we come to that that it's that idea. Until then, that we have to rely on God's grace, and that we can live into it. So it's mm-hmm. it, I wanted to only get when a, we realize how far far we've fallen. Yeah. Only when we hit bottom, so to speak, yeah. can we really yes. experience faith. You know, one of his points was that we we. We kind of skip over that. We kind of make light of it. We we t- try to do things to be holy, but we don't actually experience the fullness of that deprivation of that sin mm. of mm. that of of that sense. And for him, that was so real. And I think that he wants us to be real. And for him, that the sermon was so it's very earthy, just like Luther is. Right. But uh, there was something about it that was that was really kind of interesting and and refreshing to read in a way one more one more point on him i think what what struck me about all of this was the renaissance impact of the individual sufferer that maybe um really came true with with kind of the discovery of the humanity you know the rediscovery mm-hmm. of the flesh we discover the human space that that had kind of disappeared from much of the medieval sources you know mm. um I kept thinking of, you know, I when I pulled out a couple words that Luther used, anfektung and um, heilsgewissheit. And uh, this anfektung is this fear, this utter despair, and a heilsgewissheit is the assurance. And I kept thinking of when we talk about Renaissance art, we also talk about anfektung, and we talk about, mm. um, as you look into, it, it, I would say even the mannerists will go a little bit further, and you see that the... the you see the emotion on the faces again. Um, you see the despair able to be, uh, the, the, the human reality, the human experience that we just didn't have before in that same kind of sense. Sure. And so, I Yeah, guess, medieval portraiture seems to be rather uh, almost like wax figures compared exactly. to re- Renaissance portraiture. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so it's as you move through this, I think that, I guess it just struck me as, as kind of a birth of a modern sensitivity. And I think we kind of start to see that with Luther um, towards our call. It, it reminded me it reminded me a little more of the Jesus language we have today. I mean, it, it really did. Mm. And when I think of, because it's a little foreign for Presbyterians, but I, it makes me a little more in tune with that, the, the Jesus language, uh, Jesus my friend, and Jesus mm. is here for me, that that perhaps even as stiff Presbyterians we get away from. But, but Luther kind of brought that, to a reality in a, a way. So it was interesting. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, thanks, Christy. Thank you. Hi, friends. We are back. And as we are thinking about Easter and thinking about our sermons for Easter, I think one of the questions that has... Um, kind of come to us as we've been in this podcast today is to think about 
how we identify Jesus. Is he the crucified one? Is he the risen one? Is he the living one? And I think depending on which way you go will we'll impact how your sermon comes out. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what do you think, Alan? Well, I mean, you know me. I'm the I'm the I'm the guy who tries to get all the uh, all the liturgical language right. I would say he is the crucified one. He is the risen one. He is the living one. He is the one who sits at the right hand of God the Father, and who shall come to judge the mm-hmm. living and the dead. You know, it's all of the above, and I try to incorporate all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I guess if I had to say. There's one way I identify Jesus. I would say it is he is the one who reigns at the right hand of God. Mm-hmm. And so that that presupposes a lot of this. It presupposes the crucifixion. It mm-hmm. presupposes the resurrection. It presupposes the ascension. But I guess for me, my primary way of identifying Jesus personally is mm-hmm. he is the one who reigns over all of our lives from the right hand of God. And um, I think the reason for that is because, to, to me, I see the reign of God as being a central concept throughout the Bible. Mm-hmm. It is foundational in the Hebrew Bible, as we see primarily in the Psalms. One of the mm-hmm. fundamental theological tenets of the Psalms is that God reigns. Mm-hmm. And, and that, is, that is just the groundwork. That is the, that is the base upon which the psalm the theology of the psalms is founded mm-hmm. that god reigns and so then we come to come to jesus and he of course pro- pro- proclaims that the reign of god is has come near mm-hmm. and, it, and mm-hmm. it is going to be present in your life the psalmist sort of had this concept of the reign of god god reigns sort of generally over all mm-hmm. creation in a providential way but now jesus comes and brings god's reign into people's mm-hmm. lives in a different new and different way in a way that's going to impact them that's going to transform them that's going to make them whole Mm -hmm. that's going to give them hope you know and so jesus is bringing god's reign into people's lives and then the implication is that through the spirit uh working in the church um jesus continues to extend that reign Mm -hmm. in our in and through our lives Mm -hmm. today and so to me that is just kind of a fundamental concept in the bible regarding what god is doing i like that Sounds good, Presbyterian, though. <laughs> so well, I think, I'd like to think it's good biblical and, yeah. and good theological. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think it's I think it's great. You know, one of the things that strikes me, and, and I agree, well, I, I want to say this first, I agree 100% with Alan, and I think that, I think that is the message that most of us are hungry to hear. However, I keep thinking about the new person who walks into my church who really isn't familiar with the stories, and they might come on Easter because that's one of the two times they might show up at church. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, okay, so how are we fair to this broad theological and very important experience and to the person who might just need to hear the Jesus language? And I, I wonder if that's what pulls people to those churches yeah. is yeah. is this simplified Jesus loves me um, language and and so how do we how do we bridge that gap to meet the needs of that that person that may be their first time in the church well and i think it's okay i think it is perfectly biblically accurate and theologically responsible to speak of jesus as the living one he is the one who lives um and i realize for some people that might be a bit abstract mm-hmm but, I mean, I think that's primarily what that Jesus mm-hmm. language is about, that Jesus is going to be a part of your life now. Well, that presupposes mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Jesus lives and has an active role in your life. And, to, and so, I mean, it's almost like, you know, I'm talking about the reign of Christ, and they're translating mm-hmm. into Jesus is going to be a part of your life. You know, it's the right, same. It's, right. it's, it's, not, it's not hugely far apart. Uh, it's just that Unfortunately, right, 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 in, right. in those in those megachurch con- contexts, they tend to lack the theological foundation that that I hope that well, we have. Here's the thing that struck me as I were in this conversation: is this person has skipped Lent, and this person has skipped Holy Week. This person has skipped the crucifixion, and they appear here, and they're thinking they they, they don't understand the celebration. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things Luther was after, and certainly one of the things we're after, is making people 
feel this experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, the joy should be real because you were so low right. that now all of a sudden you realize that all that pain and anguish that you feel, all of that, I mean, that's that's where the Lent, that reflection of Lent really should hit hard, that it's all been lifted. And you haven't done the soul searching that right. you're supposed to be doing. Lent, right. And yeah. is there a way to pull that into the sermon enough mm on Sunday morning that they want more. I don't know. I don't know either. I, I mean, you know, as I mentioned last week, I usually preach the cross on Palm Sunday. Right. We've got Monday, Thursday, which also kind of has hints of the cross. Mm-hmm. If you have a good Friday service, that mm-hmm. definitely mentions the cross. So, you know, um, if you've taken that whole journey, then, then you know, it would seem strange to mention, to, to focus on the cross on Easter Sunday. But I hear what you're saying about someone who just happens to come in and maybe this is their one time mm-hmm. a year that they might even darken the door of the church. How are they even going to join in? How are they even going to experience the same kind of thing? I, you know, frankly, I'm not sure that even the people who have taken the journey through Lent right. and have heard the cross preached on Palm Sunday in my church and have gone to Monday, Thursday and have gone to Good Friday, I'm not even sure they're experiencing the kind of right. joy that is intended in, in, in the Gospels because, you know, the way we celebrate Easter is we look forward to giving presents to our children and grandchildren from the Easter Bunny. Yeah, we get very caught up with, with the doing with the again, trappings. with the trappings. Yeah, or, or in, you know, instead of focusing on, on the joy of the celebration of the risen Lord in the, in the service, you know, at least in, in before COVID times, I, I would imagine a fair amount of people sitting in your church on Easter Sunday are thinking about the family gathering. Right, right. I don't think about pastel M&Ms or anything like that. <laughs> nor do I, nor do I. And, you know, one thought, frankly, one thought that comes to my mind is maybe maybe of all days that we should use the Apostles' Creed as the affirmation of faith in our service, Easter Sunday mm-hmm. is the day. You know, it doesn't have the full gospel message because it doesn't say anything about Jesus' life. Right. But it does have the full, he was, he was crucified, died, he was buried, he was raised, mm-hmm. he ascended from the, to the right hand of God, you know, and he, he and, you know, he will, he will come again. And I love that it has the full witness of the church throughout history. Mm-hmm. There is something incredible. And I had a, a pastor, and she always used to say, let us say these words, these ancient words. And there was something really beautiful about mm-hmm. how she would introduce that because you were reminded that the witness of the church, and perhaps you were reminded of the difficulties throughout time. I mean, mm-hmm. there's there's kind of an impact there that's yeah i, I think that's well, a very yeah, good not idea. only has the apostles creed been used throughout history it's also one that every christian church at least every orthodox christian church throughout the world today mm-hmm. would use absolutely without hesitation exactly exactly so then you get this kind of connection with christians everywhere Across the spectrum. Across the spectrum, and it's it's that's also a wonderful reason to use it. I think that's a really, really good idea um, for your Easter service, and I think, honestly, it's we tend to cut out our affirmation of faith, um, and when we're trying to save time, Easter right. Sunday, we're trying to make a big production, right. but but perhaps if we really want to make the full impact, we, we put it back in. Yeah, I mean, you know... <laughs> One of one of the strengths of the Presbyterian world is that we're all about the substance. One of the weaknesses of the Presbyterian world is that our worship worship services are so full of the substance of our faith that it can be overwhelming mm-hmm. to a person like this. Right. I still I still can't see cutting out the substance because I think I that's the point. I mean, it's yeah, these other churches that that sort of skip that and go straight to the feel good. Uh, conclusion they attract Mm -hmm. people like this person you're thinking about wandering into church Mm -hmm. on easter sunday Mm -hmm. by the droves right and and that person may very well walk out of my church wondering what in the world were they talking about Mm -hmm. but you know to me my call is to present the gospel in as clear a fashion as possible in a way that can be you know, that hopefully can communicate to people. And I'm going to strive to do that. Right. But I'm, I, right. I'm not going to do that by, by um, 
dumbing it down or I by agree. cutting out parts of it that are that are essential. For even for those of us who who are very much intent on the message of the resurrection, you know, I think it's hard for us to experience even the kind of the fear and amazement that the women experienced in Mark's gospel. I, I don't think we like to go there. Right. I mean, uh, to be really honest with you, um, yeah, yeah. How often do we just avoid avoid going in that pain with them? I think if we allow ourselves to go there, that it's going to, I think it's going to really strengthen our faith. Mm-hmm. Even Luther was talking about, you know, this, this, I'm going to put on trappings of being a good Christian because in his opinion, it allowed them to kind of avoid, mm-hmm. you know, and if you don't avoid and if you really dig down and you really process, wow, Jesus died for me mm-hmm. on the cross um, and Jesus is resurrected overcame sin and death. That's pretty awesome. Well, and for me, the practical means by which I emphasize that is with Holy Week services. Exactly. And I realize, I mean, your experience is probably much like mine. Holy Week services are very sparsely attended. Yes, they are. But I'm still going to do them because yeah. that's where we can help lead people exactly. through that total experience. Well, Good Friday. I think that's one of the most important services. As, as one person um, in, in the seminary pointed out, this is the one time I can just go and cry. Yeah. And I, I can experience that low. Yeah. And talk about if you get there, then what Easter Sunday feels like. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. You bet. Yeah. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.